Hello, and welcome to the Phenomenon Report. I'm Kelly Kleinman. Today we're going to be discussing the strange case of Mr. Calvin Parker and his friend Charles Hickson, who during a full moon on a fateful October 11th evening in 1973, went fishing after their shift working at a shipyard in Pascagoula, Mississippi, only to find themselves, ironically, on the business end of another kind of hook in the form of an abduction by what can only be described as beings of unknown origin. Now, the case was covered by the national news, and over many years since the event, it's become one of the most credible, fascinating stories of human beings being collected, examined, much like we would do other species from the wild, and then let go. Quick note, more often than not, we continue to track the specimens that we collect. Tonight's guest is one of those human beings, Mr. Calvin Parker. Welcome to the Phenomenal Report, Cal. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. So you thought you were going to have a relaxing evening fishing, huh? I did. And <laughs> as you can see behind me, I love to fish. So, But that all just kind of left real quick. Yeah, yeah. Oddly, who got caught. So on the, on the uh, Pascagoula River, what kind of fish do you have over there? Oh, we have a variety of saltwater fish and freshwater fish. Yeah. Where I live, you can go up the river or you can turn and go down the river. 30 minutes either way I can be in the Gulf or I can be way up the river fishing freshwater. But we have redfish, speckled trout, bass, brim, crappie, flounders. So we just have a big variety of fish. Nice. Multiple species to pull from the depths. Sounds like my kind of place, actually. Oh, I love it. As you can see behind me, used to the weekends, this is what we spent our uh, holidays on every holiday i have a bunch of friends down here we'd all get together and get on the houseboats anchor out by sandbars so the kids can swim we would barbecue and cook maybe even drink a few beers sure you know, just have a good time and bond and that's what it's all about yeah yeah i hear you there that's uh well, let's walk through the various phases of your encounter, if you will. Um, when did you and Charles realize that you were entering the real-life twilight zone, so to speak? What were the initial events that took place that led to your abduction? Oh, gosh. When we first got to where we was going to, uh, where we got abducted, of course, it was no abandoned shipyard. And there was a postage sign there. And this is the first time I had ever been there. And I really got to EBGB's when I seen that postage sign. I thought we was doing wrong. We shouldn't be on this land. But Charlie said it was fine. And that's where it all started with me. And come to find out later, you know, that was a major problem in it. What was the sign? What did the sign say? Posted, no trespassing. And... You know, I was 18 years old, never been in no trouble, didn't want to get in no trouble, just came to the coast to work. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I questioned Charlie about, well, maybe we shouldn't be here, but he lied to me and told me he fished there all the time. <laughs> so we went on down to the pier and sat down. Yeah. And that's where it all started getting kind of wild. But I had the eebie-jeebies from the time I seen the sign on, Till all this was over with. Yeah, you had your spider senses running overtime. Yeah. Uh, so what happened? You were 
what happened? You you you, you cast your uh, you cast your bait, and then all hell broke loose. Yeah, more or less. We uh, went down and found it was an old rusty pier, and we set pulled up a log and was sitting on this log on the pier. I was looking out across the river and uh, noticed some blue hazy lights reflecting from behind me. And I was thinking, yeah, this is it. They here to arrest us for trespassing because that was the color of the uh, lights that was there. Well, Charlie just happened to see them at the same time. So we stood up and turned around and looked and that's when a big bright light hit us. And I knew we was messed up then. We was kind of screwed then. And uh, did you what? So the light hit you, but where where the light come from? Was there a craft in the air? Was it landed? What where where did you see the craft? And what this happened? thing had already landed. It was behind us. We were facing the river, and this thing landed on land back behind us. Um, and that's what was why what made me think that it was the law back there too. And then all of a sudden, when that bright light hit, I mean, that was one of the bright, there's no way to really describe how bright it was, but it was kind of blinding. But mm -hmm. my vision started kind of clearing up and I noticed three bulky looking uh, figures coming toward us. At this time, I couldn't make out if they was uh, what they were, where they was from or anything else. Well, two of them approached Charlie and got a hold of him. One of them got a hold of me, and I'm immediately, the fear just left because I felt an injection in my arm. And I feel like they injected something, and later on, this was proven, you know, from uh, the hospital. It wasn't, I forget what they said it was. I hadn't really done much research, but it wasn't a drug but I actually got two injections to calm me down and one's later on. And, you know, I'll tell you about that. And these things kind of levitated us up and floated us across the top of this uh, marsh grass that was there. And I think the marsh grass, if I was estimating, was probably three, four foot high. So it was no way, you know, to really walk through this without stumbling and getting tangled up. Now, I lost contact with Charlie because I guess I was in front of him. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got to the door, and I remember looking in this door and wondering where this big, bright light was coming from. Now, my body, I couldn't move my body, but I could roll my head and I could roll my eyes. And I looked, and it looked like this light was coming out of the walls. I mean, it wasn't no big ball bear or nothing else. It was just kind of coming out of the walls. Hmm. And as we went inside the craft, it just dimmed down. But I, I remember that light coming out of the walls, and it was bright. Well, let, let me ask you a question about the uh, beings that grabbed you. Could you. Did they have a firm grip? Could you feel the grip? Was it a... Were they mechanical? Um, I noticed that on the drawing, and we'll put, pull the drawing up right now, that it had stems or antenna coming from the head. It looks like there were three of them. Were they rigid and mechanical? Were these beings well, or were they robots? I really can't speak for the face, 
but the hands and the way he was built, I can, because I didn't really notice the face. That was Charlie's drawing. Mm. Uh, but they were mechanical. It's no doubt in my mind that these beings that had got us was robotic. Okay. And I'll explain that a little bit further on into the story here. Sure. So it seems like they were actually built for extracting human specimens, which would be somewhat of a clue to their mission objective right there. Would you agree? I agree a hundred percent. Now, were, you know, these, at, were these taller than you? Yeah, just a little bit. I was five, nine then. Mm -hmm. And they seemed to be a little taller, but you know, they had us levitated. So that kind of made us taller than what they were. Oh, wow. Were you rendered, you were rendered semi, well, you were fully conscious, but you had lost the use of your limbs and other, uh, but you could breathe I was fine, you were calm. And I remember from day one, what I seen from the first hour, uh, what I was looking at. But well, what did you experience when you, when you entered the craft? And when did the thought occur to you that these were non-human? Uh, well, we entered the craft and he immediately made a left turn. And we went down a hallway just a little bit and he made a right turn. And that was an examination room, what I'm going to call it. I don't know if that's what they call it or not. But there was like a glass table in this thing. And it was sitting, leaning, just about, you know, like that, about a 16-degree lean. And he carried me over and uh, laid me on this table on my back, facing the ceiling. All I could do was look up. And then he backed off into a corner and just shut down. And when he did this, I noticed the mechanical way he was moving. You know, you could tell that, he was robotic or something and just there because somebody built him to be there. Mm -hmm. So when they laid me on this table, it's something about the size of a deck of cards. It was bluish. They come down from the ceiling and stopped about a foot, maybe a foot and a half from my uh, face. And then it started rotating around my head. And every time it rotated a little bit, it would click. It'd go click, 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 click four times. Then this thing stopped and it shot back up into the ceiling. Now, what it did, what it was doing, I don't know. Later on, I come to believe uh, that it might have been like, a, like some of our scans that we do in the hospital. And the reason I say that, because I was in the hospital for open heart surgery, and they put me in an MRI is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it made the same noise. And I was start, and, and that's what I kind of believed this was. I'm not for sure. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, this thing clicked and went straight back up into the ceiling. Then I felt a presence in the room. Something besides this other thing, I rolled my eyes around and looked, and this big, ugly creature, what I call him, was in a corner still. And then I rolled him to the right. And there was this, uh, what I think, I don't know if it was female or what it was, but I'm feeling like it was a female being come out. And the only difference I could tell her two on her two hands, the two middle fingers was just a little longer. Now I sensed her being a female, but I don't know. 
if she was or not right then. But, you know, being from the South, a man can sense him, uh, a male, um, a female, and a woman can sense a male because, you know, we have a lot of, uh, I have to say, drag queens around here. <laughs> and usually the uh, the male the males usually look a lot better than these females. And I could tell she, she wasn't just real well kept. You know, there wasn't no makeup or anything, but she had eyes, nose, ears, mouth, hair, no breast. And she come over and she took her left hand, them two long fingers, and she put on my chin. And that's when uh, she took, pushed down on my chin and she took her right hand and she run down my throat and went back behind that little hand-me-down thing. Somebody told me what it was. I'm not for sure though. Uvula? Uvula, yeah. That's what, it, that's what they tell me it was. And she went behind it and I started choking. And uh, I started throwing up blood and choking and she pulled her fingers out real quick. And mentally telepathically she says we're not going to harm you and i thought well you know it's too late yeah for all that you know the damage is done well uh anyhow the fight was pretty much out and she made a groaning noise like an alligator would in these bayous during mating season yeah i'm and familiar with it it vibrates Rumble, all across yeah. the water. You can hear it for miles. Mm -hmm. And this big, ugly thing in the corner, he popped up. He come over and he grabbed me by the arm and he did another injection. Uh, and later on in the hospital, you know, the doctors verified that in my arm. And that's, you know, just a, I don't care shot then. So I was back to uh, being controllable and uh, starting to want to get out of there. I really wanted to get out bad. But with this shot, you know, you couldn't get up and run or nothing. You just mobilized right there. Well, she backed on off and went into another room in there. Hmm. I didn't see the door. I, I felt the presence of her being around but I didn't see her no more that night. And he picked me up and he carried me out to the pier where he picked me up and set me down. Where, what did this big bruiser look like? Oh, uh, his head set flat down on his shoulders. You know, I couldn't see no neck there. His arms was kind of long and his hands I called them crab-like hands, but actually, if you think about it, it was more like a mitten than anything. More like a what? Uh, look like mittens, like they put on their hands, yes. you know, in the cold. But anyhow, I, I, I didn't even think of mittens the night that I described this to the uh, sheriff department. I just called it crab-like hands. But he was kind of grayish and had elephant skin. Mm. I mean... He was pitiful looking and strong. Did he have big muscles, big shoulders? Well. And how tall and what kind of, what weight would you ascribe to it? You know, I've never been asked about uh, describing the weight, 
But if I had to say a weight, I'd say 250, 300 pounds and a little over, I know he was over five, nine, maybe six foot. Did it look simian? Like a, like an ape person or a, or just a alien alien? Look, just like a big robot that you oh, would okay. uh, kind of see on the movies. Oh, so this might've been a robot as well. Yeah, well, it was the same one that brought me in the crowd. Oh, I got you. Okay. Come out. okay. Now, the female, as I described her, you know, she was average looking. I had told somebody, look, if I'd been in a bar drinking and seen her in there, I would have probably asked her out on a date. I was going to ask How you, was she dateable? She <laughs> yeah, she, she had been dateable after a few drinks. Well, let me ask, but, you, uh, let me ask you a question. Was this being's hair styled in any way, or was it just ran, randomly hanging? It was randomly hanging. Did she demonstrate any facial expressions? I, and I'm most interested in the, the human, her, obviously the human-looking person. Having humanoids on board suggests a long-term mission on Earth in many ways, if not a presence that, in my estimation, predates our collective memory. Because if they have human beings, or advanced human beings, or human beings that have... Uh, the ability to uh, communicate telepathically, that says a lot. And it, uh, it leads us to believe that there might be an awful lot of play here. Uh, everybody else, everybody I talked to and all says, well, maybe it had a disguise on, looked like a lizard, but mm. I'm almost sure it was human though. Yeah. Or looked look human. Now they might have, taught her uh or she might have been taught how to uh please me you know look so it wouldn't be so scary yeah i don't know that but um she looked human to me i don't i didn't see no mask i didn't see no big lizard i didn't see the big eyed alien thing yeah sure sure is there any compassion shown by this being um or was it strictly all business and very clinical well, in a way, I think it was some compassion showed, but then other ways, you know, it was kind of like experimental, like they was experimenting on us, and it was clinical. But I thought it was compassion when she, when I started choking, and it felt like she was killing me that she pulled her fingers out of my throat. Mm. You know, that's where I felt a little compassion. Now, you're a Christian man. Have you quantified this experience with your belief in Christ? Oh, I believe in Christ uh, yeah. 100%, and I am very Christian. Yeah. But uh, I've never, uh, my faith, I've never doubted my faith. Sure. And I, I know that God would put more than, look, just look up in the sky at the different suns that's out there now. And there had to be other intelligent beings around to make it more than we are. Many mansions, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. I'm glad that it didn't shake your faith or anything like that. And I won't get into religion right now, but, uh, you know, that's, that's good to hear uh, personally. So let's Red go over the, so, so now you've been, you've been through this ordeal, the big robot that originally ab abducted you, collected you, uh, is now yes. is, is escorting you off of the craft. Do you remember like leaving the craft? Well, what, let me let's go back real quick. 
Do you remember seeing any symbols or words? Or, I or, do or, not. Or nothing? Nothing, no. Sir. Do you remember what it smelled like? I had, well, and, and the way I explain this, we live on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and there's a pogey plant that makes cat food just down the road. And you got that odor so heavy around, you can't smell nothing else usually. Yeah. Now, I could have picked up on smells if it hadn't been for that. Yeah. But, well, let's, um, go, let's go over the aftermath. When you first saw Charles again, what did you guys share with each other regarding what you just experienced and um, how you two gentlemen were going to deal with the unwelcome attention that it was going to obviously follow soon thereafter? Who called the cops and how did the cops get into the whole thing? And then was Charles covered in blood as well? No. Uh, well, when he set me out on the pier, he set me out facing the river. And I seen Charlie down on the ground, and I turn, started turning around. And that's when he grabbed me by the leg, said, son, son, you okay? You okay? And uh, this thing was starting to take off. And we both stood up and looked at it. And, of course, I was ready to get out of there. But Charlie said, you know, let's sit down. The harm's already done. It's nothing we can do. Let's sit down and talk about this. I said, okay. So we sat down on the pier a few minutes after that. And that's, uh, he said, well, we got to tell somebody. I said, no, what we got to do is get up and go to work in the morning. And keep in mind, this was my first day on the job down here too. <laughs> I got hard fired and had a physical all in the same day. <laughs> Nightmare. <laughs> yeah. I said, no, we got to. We're going to get up and go to work. We're not going to tell anybody, Charlie. Well, we got to tell somebody. Yeah. I said, well, I don't, I don't remember nothing. I said, as far as I'm concerned, if you tell anybody, you tell them I wasn't with you or I was passed out or something. He said, well, let's go home. We'll talk about this tomorrow. So we got in my little car. We drove toward his house. And of course, back then, they didn't have cell phones or social media or anything. This little store that was there had a payphone by it. He said, pull over here. I thought he was going to call his wife and tell her we was fixing to be home for supper because I was renting an apartment, a room from him there mm -hmm. until I found a place. Well, we raked around and found some change in the floor, and he went and put it in the payphone. And he come back to the car and he said, they told me to uh, call the local law enforcement. I said, who told you that, Charlie? He said, Kiesler Air Force Base. So he actually called Kiesler Air Force, the first call that he made. Hmm. And uh, I thought, well, you idiot. We agreed not to tell nobody. He said, and now I got to call the local authorities, which was the Jackson County Sheriff Department. So he came back and hunted some more change and actually got it, stuck his hand under the seat, which fell out of people's pockets and all, found enough change to make a phone call. And uh, he called the Jackson County Sheriff Department. Well, of course, they said, don't leave. Y'all stay right there. And I know why. They thought we was drinking or drugged up or on dope. And they wanted to make sure we didn't get on the road and drive like that. 
and believe me, after they said stay right there, I wasn't going nowhere because it was my car I was driving. So I just got over there under the driver's wheel and I said, till the patrol car got there. They got out and of course I was driving. They stepped to my side of the car, it was two of them. They didn't even go over on Charlie's side and ask him anything. And they looked in the car and they said, do you have a driver's license? I said, yes, sir, I wouldn't be driving. So I pulled it out and showed it to them. They said, have you been drinking? I said, no, sir, I hadn't been drinking. They said, well, step out of the car. Well, they did a little field sobriety test. Then they told me, they said, stand on one leg, bend your head back, touch your finger with your nose, jump up and down on that foot and count from 100 backwards. I said, man, I can't do that even if I was sober. You know, I was just trying to get them off my case. They said, well, you look fine. Will you follow us to the uh, sheriff's department? I said, yes, sir, I will. Be glad to. So we did. We got behind them, drove back across the bridge, and uh, went to the uh, local sheriff's department. They took Charlie in one room, took me in another room. Well, just the other day, I found out instead of recording us together, they recorded all, every conversation that they had with me and him both and put us in a room together and recorded us. So, and I just got that tape the other day. So anyhow, they interrogated me, uh, put me back into a room. Then a few minutes, Charlie come back and uh, put us in a room. And this is where they got what they call the secret tape, where we was talking about it between us. And the sheriff walked in, Fred Diamond, he walked over and he got the tape recorder out. And uh, I didn't know it was a tape recorder at this time. I didn't know what it was. I really wasn't paying attention. And he come in, he said, you boys go and I want to see y'all tomorrow. And they had already told me this was a hoax. We was going to jail. Of course, I'd rather be in jail than where I was. So anyhow, we left and went home. We got home and uh, or got back to the room. And I kept complaining to Charlie, look, you know, there's something wrong. I feel like we need to, uh, we don't need to be around other people right now. We, you know, we might have something that we can give them. We might have radiation or, and the reason I was thinking this, cause these Apollo missions was going on. Yeah. And I noticed they isolated the astronaut seven days from everybody. Nobody could talk to them. And I just felt like we needed to be isolated somewhere. So I went to the room. He said, don't worry about it. I went to my room, got in a shower, pulled off all my clothes. Back in, they didn't have plastic bags. You had a big old paper bag. I put everything I had, shoes and all, inside this bag took a gallon of bleach and poured over my head and I took a good shower and washed that bleach off because I knew mama always made us bathe in bleach when we had poison ivy or something. So I knew that bleach would probably kill anything that was on us, including skin. So I did that and I took that bag out to the dumpster and I'd give anything if I'd kept it because it had been DNA on it. 
And nowadays we could have checked that. Throwed it in the dumpster and uh, went in there and I laid down and pretended like I was sleeping, but I never went to sleep. You know, I was laying there thinking about putting my thoughts together all night. And uh, I woke up the next morning pretty early and Charlie was already up. He was in there talking to Blanche. So I walked in, he said, you want some coffee? I said, no, I don't drink that stuff. And I didn't back in. I said, let's go, let's go to work. So we got in my car and we was riding to work. And when we pulled up, I didn't know how many cars was supposed to be at the shipyard because this is my second day there. My first day, you know, I worked one day, got off that evening, went fishing, got abducted. So my second day there, when we pulled up, I noticed there was some big uplink TV trucks or something. I thought maybe somebody might have got hurt. And uh, we got out, we went and brassed in, and it wasn't just a minute. They was calling mine and Charlie's name to the office. So we went to the uh, office and they said, y'all got to give a press release. We can't even use their phones. Y'all business is shut down until y'all do. And I thought, well, how did they find out about all this? But apparently somebody with a scanner had tipped them off. But Charlie wasn't keeping no secrets himself. So uh, they mm -hmm. said, we're going to furnish an attorney, our shipyard attorney, Joe Comingo. And y'all give the press release to him and he'd give it to the press and try to get rid of these people Well, we can go back to work. And they asked me, what did I say? I never told them nothing. Charlie gave them the press release. Uh, the attorney gave it to the press. And then all of a sudden the uh, sheriff and one of his de detectives came in. He said, uh, told, uh, Mr. Walker, he said, which owned the shipyard, I'd like to uh, talk to these two guys. So they sent us in there to talk to him. And I expressed to him about my concerns about having uh, uh, being contagious and giving it to somebody else and hurting them and radiation. He said, well, look, I've made arrangements to take you out to the hospital and we're going to let Dr. Bosco check y'all out, which was one of the lead doctors here at the uh, Sangin River Hospital. Mm -hmm. And he did. They escorted us right on in, kept everybody away. Dr. Bosco did his blood work. He did everything he needed to be and checked us out. He said, I feel like they're safe enough to go. He said, I am concerned if they do have radiation or something, that maybe they need to uh, go on and get checked for that. So he loaded us in the car and he drove us to Keesler Air Force Base. Well, when we got there, we didn't, we didn't even have to stop. They escorted us all the way to the back. Uh, there were six guys in hazmat suits standing up on a loading dock. And they told everybody else to sit in the car and told us to get out. And they checked us for radiation. And Charlie didn't show any, but I showed a small amount which wasn't enough to hurt you. And uh, they said, all clear. They said, now they want to see y'all in the back. 
So I thought, boy, I'll be so glad. Charlie run his dang mouth and he's got us in all this. And, uh, you know, me and Charlie, we had a lot of problems right after that. I'll bet. <laughs> so, yeah, we did. And <laughs> they put an escort in front of us. We went back and they had this big conference room. It seemed like a mile down there. It wasn't that far, but it was mm -hmm. a long ways down that hallway. Well, we had the military brass sitting in there, the Air Force, the Navy. Um, then we had the mayors from our three, three little towns in there. And we had uh, the local law enforcements in there from the three counties. And they wanted us to uh, do an interview with them. Well, by this time I was scared and wanting to get through. So I did do an interview and it's all documented in uh, our book, what was in the interview and everything. And uh, we'll they plug said, that well, book we... at the end for sure. Right. They, they said, uh, well, that's all y'all can go. It wasn't nothing like no man in black. I was extremely nice. Well, matter of fact, everybody after that was nice. I think they seen the sincerity in her face and her eyes. So we got up and it went back to the car and I couldn't wait to get out of there because I was fixing to come back to Laurel, Mississippi, where I was originally from. That was 109 miles away. And that little car I had was fixing to beat it down and come on back. But on the way back to the office, uh, the sheriff said, there's one more person that wants to see you. He said, uh, Dr. J. Alan Hynek. Hynek, yeah. yeah. And I was wondering to myself, now who in the world is this? I've never heard of this man before. But anyhow, we got in. And believe it or not, I feel pretty comfortable. Dr. Hynek and Dr. Harder had came down. And how they got there as fast as they did, I don't know, but they come on. And Dr. Heineck took me in there first and interviewed me. Then he sent me to uh, Dr. Uh, Harder to get kind of like a physical and talk to and regress a little bit. And, uh, but I felt comfortable talking to Heineck. So I, you know, I kind of opened up to him, even though I didn't know him, but he just had that grandfather look and he'd sit there, put his, thumb under his chin just kind of stare at you and he said well i'm going out to the site where this happened and i'll see y'all in the morning i was thinking you might not see me in the morning but i promised him i'd come by and i keep my word the best that i can mm -hmm. so we went on back home and i tried to sleep again but by this time i was peeled to the ceiling and Dr. Heineck went out to the site where this happened. Well, we got to work, and the next morning we come in. And he was upset because the sheriff department hadn't uh, ribboned off where this all happened because he wanted to go out and look for all kind of evidence and all. And it was already reporters trumping over it and everything else. They knew exactly where it was. So, well... Uh, we talked a little bit. He gave me his phone number and, uh, he said, well, you can go. 
So I packed up my bags. I didn't even, I just left Charlie there. I didn't even want to say goodbye to him because he is the one, as far as I was concerned, that started all this. I got in my car and I came back to Laurel, Mississippi. Well, it was 46 years later before I talked to my wife, my family, um, my immediate family or my friends about all this. They didn't ask me nothing. I didn't tell them nothing. I spent my time, my whole life changed. My intentions was to uh, get a job, buy a house, get married, have children, have grandchildren, retire and fish. Well, it didn't quite go all that way. Uh, and you keep a secret from your wife for 45 years. You stay in a doghouse pretty much a lot. But I had to give her credit. She never pushed or asked about it or nothing. Hmm. But I went through hell. I would move to uh, different towns, get different jobs. Uh, I, every time the media would catch on, I mean, they... They stalked me 45 years because I never gave an interview. Hmm. Now, it was different with Charlie because he opened up. Yeah, He went to the conferences. He talked about it. He wrote a book. Uh, so, you know, Charlie was out there for him, and he kept his thing alive. And now that he did, I'm glad he did. And... You know, the book that he wrote, I've never read it. I have a copy in there. Philip Mantle sent me a copy. Who did? Phil Mantle? Phil Mantle, yeah. <laughs> I'm interviewing him in two days. Oh, really? Yeah, I'll tell him you said hi. Yeah. Philip is the publisher of my other books, and he is actually the reason that I wrote these two books. Amazing. Small world. If, if it hadn't been for him, I wouldn't know. Uh, wouldn't have them. We have a really, Philip is a great guy. Great. But anyhow, I run from the truth and how this other came about. Uh, after 45 years of dodging the subject, we had a neighbor that died over there. Well, I wasn't even using my real name in uh, the community that I live in. Well, when this guy passed away, I felt obligated to go to the wake for his wife and daughter. We was there, and I did something I never do. I signed my real name to the register when you went in. Well, I figured after 45 years, there wouldn't nobody be uh, hunting it. Somebody read it. They said, are you the Calvin Parker? And they started going to get cameras and books from uh, Charlie for me to autograph. I said, whoa, wait a minute. You know, we're at a neighbor of mine's wake. His wife and his daughter is grieving in there. I'm not taking away from that. I'm getting the hell out of here. And I don't yeah. want y'all to follow me and I don't want y'all to interfere with this people. And it was people from Texas and all that. I mean, it was five or six people coming in and it was distracting. Sure. I know to the family. So on the way home, my uh, wife said, you know, Calvin, people seem to think so much of you. And by this time, I had on 
some construction companies down here and I've worked a lot of these people on the coast, but I'm, they never really knew my real name. I used my name in business only. And I uh, let somebody else sign the checks. But anyhow, my wife said, why don't you write a book? They want to know. You've never even talked to me about it. I want to know now. I said, I don't think you do. This has been something that I've hid all this time. I said, let me think about it. And I said, I, I don't have the education. I mean, I don't, I don't have any education. And I don't know how to even go about writing a book. Well, just so happened that when this first started, there's a guy named Martin Willis that uh, did an interview with me. Philip Mantle had got a hold of Martin, and Martin called me and wanted to know if he could give me my information. I said, well, I guess so. I see what he wants. Well, he was actually bought the rights to Charlie's book, and he wanted to ask me some questions. And uh, it ended up, he, he said, well, why have you been moving all this time? I said, because I don't trust the media. You know, you tell them something, they don't tell you like it is. I said, media and politicians are two people I don't trust. And I'm just not going to talk to somebody and then, then change my words. He said, look, Calvin, you're looking at it wrong. Write a book. Put it black and white, document it. That's your legacy. They can't change that. Well, I got to kind of thinking about it. He said, I'll call you back in a week and we'll talk some more about it. Well, automatically, when I got off the phone with him, I seen his number and I put no answer by it because I had no intentions of talking to him. But I was happy to be down at the boat landing and the phone just ringing back to back and back. And I was wanting to get rid of whoever that was calling. I thought it might be something wrong at home. And I answered, it was Philip Mantle. I didn't want to be rude and hang up on him. So we started talking. Well, then right then, you know, I told him right away. I said, Philip, it's one way that I'll do this. I said, I'm not an educated man. I don't want this book edited. I don't want to misspell word corrected. I don't want a punctuation mark put where it is. And if I say something slang in there, whatever I say, that's the way that it is. Nothing's to be changed. And uh, we made an agreement. Well, he helped me. He gave me an outline of where to start. He would, he would do that. And he, he would go through a copy. And he might say, well, Maybe you need to get into more detail about this or something, you know, and that's the way that we did it. Then he'd take it back chapter one, two, and we've made a real good team working and we have sold a many of books. Uh, and Philip was right. Actually, I figured I would sell 10 books and I'd buy them and give one to uh, each of my family and my friends that I've kept this from, and I wouldn't have to sit down and tell them about this. Well, we was actually going to release the uh, book in September, I believe. Mm -hmm. And this was July. He accidentally let it get loose. It started selling so many copies that he had to shut down, more or less shut down his publishing company and pay attention to this. 
it hit the bestseller list second day in a row. Uh, and I, he sent me, I think they gave me four copies. And I told him, I said, well, you know, I want 10 copies regardless of what I had to pay for them. And that's what I did. I handed them out to my family, my friends, and I still hadn't talked to them about them. My wife said something. I said, well, read the book and get an idea of what's going on. And I finally sat down, you know, and me and her had this conversation. And it was because I felt sorry for her because Bud Hopkins did an original hypnosis. I didn't think I was hypnotized. Uh, I told Philip, I said, well, Bud Hopkins, you know, I spent a day or two with him and he hypnotized me or tried to, and I don't think he did. He said, oh, Bud's dead now, but he's a great fellow. Let me, uh, Dr. Jacobs has his work. Let me get a hold of him. Dave Jacobs? Uh-huh. So uh, Dr. Jacobs called me. He said, can I release this tape to uh, Philip Mantle? I said, certainly you can give him anything he wants. I trust Philip. And I still trust Philip 100%. Philip has been a great person. He's been a big help to me. Uh, he is the reason that these books has gone so good. So anyhow, we got that. And when I, he transcribed that tape. Now you talking somebody from the UK that don't talk the same language that I do living down here on the Mississippi Gulf Coast trying to translate them tapes, I'd get a call from him every day. What what does this mean? I said, well, it's the trunk of a car. Well, they called it the boot in England. I said, you need to learn to speak English. He said, well, we invented the English language. But anyhow, we worked on it and got it out. So when I got it, I did realize I was hypnotized. And I went in there and told my wife, I said, you're not going to believe this stuff. But when we went to see them idiots in uh, Tampa, Florida, and that's what I told her, I said, uh, he really did hypnotize me. And I want you to go back and I want you to read some of this. So when I get my full memory back, he put a post-hypnotic suggestion in there where uh, I wouldn't remember it until I was ready to remember it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, since then, I remember it well. But uh, she come back in about 15 minutes. She come out of the room crying. She said, I can't listen to no more. I said, why? She said, you went, you went through it. That's all I'm going to say about it. And uh, I said, well, I'm not going to go back and read it. I'm going to wait until I start remembering. And I did a little show with Linda Moulton Howe, and she's so pushy that, oh, uh, yeah, you know that uh, uh, <laughs> she jogged my memory on it. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, go ahead. I go back through all of it. But I want to back up a little bit. When I got Doctor Hynek's phone number, he told me he said, "Anytime you want to, or you need to, you feel the need to, you call me." I remember one time calling, and uh, Paul answered the phone. He was out playing kickball, and he was in a big hurry. And uh, 
I was telling him how to spell Pascagoula. Heck, I didn't know how to spell it back in. So I know Heineck had trouble in it. But anyhow, that's the first time I talked to him. Then I got to meet him in uh, UFO Congress in Phoenix, mm -hmm. Arizona. And we got to spend a lot of time together. Since then, we've been really good friends and spent a lot more time together. Uh, I, it's nothing for me to pick up the phone during the day and call Paul and say, what you up to, Redneck? Yeah. Right. Or Yankee. <laughs> yeah. Well, he said, well, well, the name of your book, by the way, folks, is Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter, My Story. And uh, I suggest you, you pick it up and, and take a look at it. Hey, let me ask you a question. Do you have, uh, do you have copies of, do you have a copy of the tape that you could send? recording of your your hypnotic session philip does well it's in it's in the book in the other book where where i like better this is the second book out uh Pascagoula, the story continues new new witnesses uh new evidence and new witnesses and that's really an informative book on this case right here we, we, oh. you, you know what, uh, Calvin, we have, we've dug up a, a piece of footage, a couple, uh, the Blairs, who witnessed your event firsthand. Let's go ahead and run that footage real quick. Good. We were in a, a 69 GTO, and we were waiting on the captain of the boat, crew boat, to come out because he was going out on the boat, but he was delayed getting here because of... Uh, him for some reason I don't remember what it was but anyway so we decided to just sit in the car and wait it out and uh, it went from daylight started getting dark in the afternoon and uh, that's went over in that west direction right back over in that way that bridge there wasn't there and um, I noticed a blue light come up in the sky over there and then I seen it start going if I was following the river bank the river here and it would go so far down, and then it would turn around, and it would come back. And it wouldn't get past from where they were abducted, uh, Parkman, Parker and Hickman. And so, and then it would go back, and it did that several times, and then sometimes it would just sit there. And then finally it just, I didn't see it anymore. And he said, well, let's go on down, and I'll put my clothes on the uh, boat because the captain should be here shortly maybe so we went on and started walking down which was the, used to be a pier right there right. and we started walking down the pier and that's when we we heard he was ahead of me walking and that's when I heard a loud splash like something splashed in the water and uh, right after he stopped and I stopped and I said what was that and uh, so he, he just kept right on walking, but I stood there and I noticed that something was on the side of the pier, look, on the side of the, the pier while I was standing, it looked like a, a person in the water. And I told him, I said, there's somebody out there. And he said, oh, come on, ain't nobody out there. So I noticed that something come up and I could see it when they come up to the surface, come up to the surface of the water and then it just disappeared. It looked like a, it looked like a person out there. So, I mean, I'm looking right down at it because I'm standing on the pier and right below is where I seen it, right below me. And so 
it just disappeared in the water and I told him I said there's some you know there's somebody out there I'm gonna wait and see if they come back up I said if they went down they gotta come back up but I'm not thinking alien I'm thinking people you know it just like I did with the UFO I'm thinking plane because I told him when I seen that that there was that plane that, yeah I said I told him I said that plane don't act like it knows where I, it wants to go I said at first it was plane then the maneuvers it's making I said that, that's a helicopter go. A plane can't stop like that, Hoover. Yeah, and so yeah. anyway, that's what I told him when we were sitting in the car that the plane act like it was lost because it kept, you know, kept going. And planes don't act like that. They don't go in one place and then turn around, and come back, and like that. But anyway, going back to the bridge, he walked on down the bridge, and I, he kept telling me to come on. And I told him, I said, No, I'm gonna wait to see if they come back up. And I stood there waiting, and uh, I never did see anything come back up. But I know what I seen that night. It wasn't. It looked like a person in the water. It was right below me, and it wasn't. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking people, but undoubtedly it wasn't. Pretty amazing, huh? It is amazing. Miss um, Blair's 100% true in what she says, and all. She just recently lost her uh, husband just a oh, few weeks ago. Yeah, and on his deathbed, all these years he told her to be quiet because she was, uh, people would think she was crazy. But on his deathbed, he apologized to her for telling her that. Yeah. He said, I shouldn't have never told you that. I seen the same thing. We went through it together and we should have. Uh, but that's like I told, she had some hard feelings toward him for a little while. And that's like I said, please don't, because it tore me up emotionally. I was working in the oil field. I was making really good money and uh, went to work at the shipyard for one day, got hired and fired in a physical all in the same day. And I said, don't hold it against him because that's the way that I felt too. And I said, he was probably right. You would have been ridiculed. I know I have been. Yeah. through the years and other than people changing my story or the media changing my story i really uh hadn't been ridiculed that much mm -hmm. i thought it was i just wanted to be left alone sure <clears throat> makes sense have you had any experience since then or was it i had done it was more or less done back in 1993 and that actually comes out in this second book too in the hypnosis thing but in 1993 i went to uh tell my wife i said look i'm going uh fishing i said but i'll be back before dark because right after this happened now this is 20 years later mm -hmm. but right after this happened uh i didn't fish at night anymore I said, well, I'm going fishing, going to Cat Island. I'm going to stay out there a little while, and I'll be back uh, before dark. Well, I got out fishing. She had fixed me a lunch, and uh, I kind of sat down on the bench eating my lunch, and I seen a big cloud overboard. Well, now this is 11 o'clock. It was lunchtime, and I was waiting for the tide to change. Next thing I knew, I come to back on that boat at 3 o'clock in the morning. 
I had all this missing time there. Hmm. And I was really, it's really bothering me what had happened and all. And this is when I first seen Bud Hopkins. And he hypnotized me and he got all this information out. And then later on, I had Kathleen Martin fly down here to uh, Pascagoula from Florida. And she is pro. I mean, she's professional. And she rehypnotized me in a three-hour session. And I pulled, she pulled stuff out. And she didn't lead me. She would just ask me uh, questions like, well, what color? Did she have or something like that? Well, after a three-hour session, and this is uh, the whole tape is in the second book. It uh, it brought out a lot of information, good information that I needed to know. So anyhow, you know, I've been hypnotized twice. I took several polygraph tests, took a voice stress test. They tell me that's better than a polygraph, but uh. Besides anything, I've endured 46, 47 years of this right now. And well, you know for sure, you had, obviously you had one uh, close encounter. More than likely you had a second one. There might yes, have been a third one mixed in that we just haven't recovered yet. Well, you know, the funniest thing to come up when I started in my book, the one thing that really bothered me, and I, the way I set the time on this was uh, when JFK got assassinated, me and my brother, we, we all lived in a small house and we had to share a bedroom. Well, uh, he woke up one night. He always called me Pee Wee because I was always real small. He said, Pee Wee, Pee Wee, there's a ghost blowing in your ear. And uh, he was terrified screaming and I felt my ear and it was wet and you know that that's really bothered me ever since he died before I really got a chance to talk to him he died just before the book came out and I always wanted to talk to him about it but I never did well you know I we was really I close I'm sorry go ahead me and him were really close I'm sorry to hear that by the way no that's fine I mean we all die well, the quick note that I expressed early in the introduction was that more often than not, we continue to track the specimens that we collect. So right. you're mentioning 1993. I didn't even know about that, by the way. So uh, it makes sense. It makes sense. Uh, it's just what we do. And certainly now you're mentioning uh, as a young boy that there's a possibility that something happened. We know something happened. It's yeah. definite. Something happened in 73. More than likely, something happened in 93. And, well, let's figure out the numbers. So 20 years. So, well, it's, you were born in, uh, let's do What are you, 68 right now? Something like that? 65. So yeah, I was born 55. in 54. 50, um, 54. No, 65. Yeah. Oh, 65, right. So you're, you're a little older than I am. Uh, so, all right. I mean, almost 20-year intervals, roughly, or actually – could be 20 year intervals, right? Right. Could have been in yeah, I was born in 1954. Kennedy got assassinated in uh, 62? Three? Three. 63, I believe. Yeah. 
And then it's happened in 73. So it might happen in 83 also. And then you got 90, 90, oh, you said 93. 93. Also. Now, Philip, when he's on your show, ask him about the 93 deal. Okay. It, it, it takes a while and then maybe we can set up another show and get back into that. Let's do that. Let's but I have a good memory of what's going on. I was hypnotized and this is in 93. I actually had enough of this bull and we actually got physical and had a physical fight in the crowd. And, uh, I was gone. I wanted my evidence. I was going to wrap my arm around that, her neck, little skinny neck and jump out of that thing with her. But talk to Philip about it and you'll get a better understanding. He can send you some tapes and all. And then we'll set up and just do a show on that. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us, folks. This is Mr. Calvin Parker, a fellow that I've known about since the event took place and made the national news. I want to thank you so much for joining us. And don't forget to buy the book. The book has been, he's got two books out now. I know for sure one of them is called uh, is it, uh, we have it here, Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter, My Story. And then the other one that came out is called The Closest, uh, go ahead. Pascagoula, The Story Continues, the story New Evidence and New Witnesses. As a matter of fact, I have a hard time remembering that name. Yeah, it's a mouthful, right? It is. Philip actually come up with a name on them and all. Sure. But, uh, I know you said you're going to have him in a couple of days or something. Yeah, he's coming up in a couple of days. Yeah, we'll be talking to him, and we'll definitely uh, broach the subject of what happened to you in 1993, along with some other, other interesting uh, stories. Right. Here. But I want to thank you again, uh, Calvin uh, Parker, for joining us. Um, thank you. A pleasure. We'll have you on again. We'll do part two coming up, and uh, look forward to that. And stay healthy and uh, enjoy your fishing. Folks, this is the Phenomenon Report. I beckon you to like it, to comment, and to share, but most of all, subscribe. We get down to the bottom of some very interesting subjects, and of course, we like to delve into the unknown to make it more known. And certainly with what the DOD has admitted in the past several months, these events that we looked at with some doubt and with some scorn and some skepticism in the past, are panning out to be the truth. And that's what we want to get down to the bottom of. Once again, this is Kelly Kleiman. Again, thank you, Calvin Parker. We'll speak thank to you, you on the Phenomenon Report.